Good morning, everybody. It's Lisa Salberg, and we are here, I hope, live with you on Facebook recording Tales from the Heart. Yep, that looks like we're good. <laughs> oh, it's going to be one of those days, people. It's going to be one of those days. So, um, number one, it's July 22nd, 2022. Lots of twos today. Two is a good number. Uh, and I am joined by Dr. Harry Lever. Good morning, Harry. Uh, hi. And we are here for another episode of Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the Hypodrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. Today, I have an announcement that I'm going to start with. And if you're a part of our Facebook group, this is being televised from the Facebook page, there's going to be a uh, call to action. Uh, I only have a couple of days on this one. Uh, we are going to be working with the FDA on a project to evaluate the effectiveness of risk evaluation and mitigation systems, REMS programs. This is partially, we're, we're doing this because of the REMS programs that are connected with the Camzios launch of Mavicampton. So Camzios, Mavicampton, same drug. Um, and this is not an evaluation of Camzios and its effectiveness in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. This is more of a systems question. So if you have been prescribed, not part of a clinical trial, if you've been prescribed CAMSIOS and you have signed up for the REMS program, we would like to hear your experience. We're only looking for about five people. So if you are interested, um, please email Julie Russo at julie at 4hcm.org and Julie will um, help get your information and then we can have a discussion about what exactly it is the FDA is looking for and then get this all aligned for you. HCMA will be making its own comments about the REMS program system from our point of view, um, but this is an opportunity to speak directly with the FDA to share your experience, to help make these processes more effective um, in the future, uh, pr protecting patient safety, as well as improving you know, the logistics of how systems like this work. So if you have been prescribed CAMSIOS and you would like to share your experience, again, it's julie at 4hcm.org and she will assist you. So uh, that was my big announcement for the morning. And my second announcement for the morning is this is the last Tales from the Heart podcast that you will see from this studio, I'll call it. It's really my office. Uh, the HCMA will be moving its offices next Tuesday. Uh, we will not be broadcasting next Friday due to um, a lot of moving stuff going on. So we'll be back with you the first week of August with our new studio and uh, a, a new look. And it may not be completely ready yet, but we're going to try to be live and, and up to date by then. So that being said, it is July and our, our, our theme of the month, we have two themes every month. Um, our first theme is Center of Excellence Care and Why It Matters. And our side, uh, our second theme is Vacationing with HCM, What You Need to Know. Um, I'm going to start with Center of Excellence Care, and we're talking with somebody who helped develop the concept of Center of Excellence Care, Dr. Harry Lever, with all of his years of experience at the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, so, Harry, let's let's take a little let's take a little journey back because it's fun to look back sometimes. 1996, seven. You know, we meet each other, and I'm like, "Hey, I want to help patients with HCM," and you said, "Hey, I want to help patients with HCM." And we started working together all those years ago. At that point, what was the myectomy volume at Cleveland Clinic? 25 a year. 
And what was your patient volume like at that point? I don't absolutely remember that. I, I don't, that number, I, I was always struck by the difference in the, in the myectomies because I think within a year or so, we went from like 25 to 65 myectomies. I don't remember the app, but certainly the numbers went up. There was no question that the number of, of Hocum patients in general went up. I mean, there's, there was no, no question about it. And, you know, it was, uh, it was incredible. So in a time well, when we didn't have cell phones, you know, no, we actually had to like call I, poor Karen, that poor secretary I used to have. I used to call it Karen. It's Lisa. I need Harry, Karen. It's Lisa. I need Harry. And then Karen and I became great friends. Um, so back then we had an understanding and appreciation for HCM based on the technology, the limited genetic knowledge we, we were learning. Right. And from the time that your center was, you know, your destination surgical center always, but as things evolved, did your understanding of HCM evolve too? Oh, there's no question about it. I mean, we, you'd see so much stuff that you would just learn as you went in terms of the anatomy. And, and that, that was the big deal is that we, we would see different sizes and shapes. And, you know, and that was, that was, just because we were seeing so many different patients that, that, that had such varying anatomy. And you just, it was dramatic. The effects were dramatic. And that's how we uh, got started writing some papers. And, you know, uh, um, we, we were one of the first centers to recognize that there was a difference between elderly hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and the young type. Bernadine Healy and I worked together and we, we recognized that there was a difference between what, what occurred in older people and what occurred in, uh, in younger people. And that was a big deal, you know? And, and uh, so, and again, it was just a matter of looking at, so having the opportunity to look at so many different people. So anatomy is varied, symptomology varies, um, risk varies. Right. Psychosocial implications vary. There's just so much that affects an HCM patient. And if you're only seeing a small number of HCM patients, you're not seeing the whole disease, are you? Nope, not at all. So back then I started working with you and a few other centers to ensure that patients who had HCM could get to people who knew the disease at a deeper level. Right. And that became the model for additional programs to be added over the years. We now have 45 programs. We have a few more in process. Um, by fall, we should add one or two more to the system. Um, and then additionally after that. So why do you feel it is important for an HCM patient to be seen at a high volume center of excellence for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? Well, just because the people you're gonna see are going to have had more experience than somebody that sees five or six cases a year. And that, that it's just so important that you need to be able to, you know, you know, it's like, it's like a car mechanic, you know, you want somebody that knows how to fix a lot of cars and isn't just, you know, it, it's, that's the way it is. You know, you have to have people that are experts or you need a good airplane. It's like an airplane pilot. You know, you want somebody that's got lots of hours flying, Jet that airplane. kind of plane, right? That's right. That's yeah. right. You know, and if you, that's 
you know, as a, as a matter of fact, you know, airplane pilots, they have to test out on their, whatever plane they're going to be flying, you know, if it's a, you know, what, you know, so. We don't, we, we it's kind of hard to test out a doctor on that one. That's the other right. thing I want to talk about is the team and the access to other professionals who right. can be additive to the knowledge and understanding of that patient's journey and what options might be available for that individual patient. Right. Specifically, you know, you know, in the case of Cleveland Clinic, you guys are a little spoiled. You've got somebody named Nick Smedera in your surgery suite. Right. So you've got a very high volume, very well-respected surgeon, but right. there's other people on the team. There's interventional cardiologists, there's electrophysiologists. And then within electrophysiology, there are people who specialize in atrial fibrillation, sudden death management, lead extractions, device placement, and all of the sub areas related to HCM, but all working together, not against each other. Right. And I don't mean against each other, like it's some plot against the patient, but if you're seeing an independent electrophysiologist or an independent interventional cardiologist or an independent you know, general cardiologist, they're working in silos. When you're in a center, you're working as a team. And every, I, I like when centers can fight nicely together and really push their point, what they think is right for a patient. And that passion is there for the understanding of the disease. You don't get that in low volume centers. You get that in a center of excellence. Right. Okay. So in your time in a center, are there any points in time or experiences that you felt that shifted the patient care dynamic? Is it the guidelines? Is it the fact that patients are coming educated and knowing what a center of excellence can offer? How do you think patients interact with centers? Well, I think it's a matter of, you know, you're, you're, you were able to direct people in the right places. That was the big deal is that you were you knew enough about the disease that you recognized the fact that people needed to have skills to deal with patients like that. And that, that was, and it was a matter of working together. You know, there was no, uh, we, the only vested interest we had was taking good care of people. There, and there was no, you know, it wasn't a matter of making money. It wasn't, you know, it was a matter of taking good care of people. And people knew that they could trust first they could trust you, and that was uh, that was a big deal. I mean, uh, you know, and you know, you still have to be able to trust the people that you're dealing with, and that, you know, there was no vested interest in our part. It was a matter of just getting the people taken care of, and that was a, that was a big deal. It's funny when you start looking back, every time I, I take a change, like 2014, we moved into this office, 2022, we're moving to a larger office. Um, I take a look back, like I'm moving to a bigger space because we literally don't have any room here anymore. Like I've, I've grow, outgrown my office and I think, where did this start and how did, all, how did I collect all this stuff and where did it come from? And it really came from partnerships and caring, passionate physicians in the care of those with HCM. And it really came about because we all started working together collectively in the best interest of the patient. Um, and that's really what this is about. And, and my why, we all have our whys. My family had been hurt enough by HCM. Right. And my sister died because of mismanagement. She was diagnosed, we got there, but she was mismanaged. 
And we still see mismanagement today, unfortunately, in low volume centers where people don't have a great deal of experience um, or just a lack of appreciation from community cardiologists or community healthcare workers about HCM. So we're working to fix that problem. And we have a number of methods in, in place to do that. But nothing has been as impactful in this entire journey than the partnering with high quality medical centers and staff that understand the need for high volume care and truly working with the patient in, in ways that just don't seem to happen in regular clinical practice today. It takes time, it takes hours of conversation and testing and assessment to find the right treatment path for the right patient. And you can only do that when you have hundreds of patients that you've already worked with and you've learned along the way. Um, what else can we say about centers of excellence and why they're important? I think that I think that's the, the, the biggest, you know, biggest deal. And I think the fact that you have to have a, a good surgeon is, is clearly that. You know, I, I I can remember a case that I saw well, right, somewhere a couple of years before the pandemic, patient uh, but having a lot of chest pain, and and he went he got to see a cardiologist somewhere who was an expert in putting in stents, and he uh, by the time I got to see him, he had had ten stents without exaggeration, and problem was he wasn't feeling any better. And unfortunately, they hadn't recognized the fact that he also had hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And they got stuck on the stents and didn't look past it. And, and by the time we saw him, it was really, it was, the guy was in dire straits. And, you know, you just can't, that, that we, we were lucky we saved him. I mean, it was, it was so bad, you know. And so we ended up operating on him and doing a myectomy and also putting in some bypasses. As because the, the stents hadn't, you know, and obviously they hadn't done what they needed to do. And plus, plus they were technically a problem. So, you know, you gotta, you, you gotta know. And, you know, when it comes to doing a myectomy, you gotta know how to do it in terms of don't take out too much, not take out too little. Understand now that we've, we've kind of a big understanding about the mitral valve, that, that, that you can have obstruction to the blood flow out of the heart without having necessarily that second to heart, but you can still get obstruction and you may have to do something to the mitral valve to, to make it, to, you know, change the leaflets, change the papillary muscles, you know, and that's a, that's, a, that's a big deal. And if you don't know that, you may end up going to see a second surgeon for, for something to be done to the heart. You gotta, you gotta know all those things, you know, how do the papillary muscles work? How do the how do the mitral leaflets work? You know, and I, mean, I, I think you know you bring up a point that I think there's a, a forgotten part of the heart. And <laughs> I think it's the papillary muscles. Oh, yeah. And I think they um, you know, most people don't even realize that they have these little finger-like apparatus at the base right. of their ventricle that's attached to the cordae, that's attached to the valve, and that they all work in concert, and that in HCM. They're commonly abnormal. There's, they're too thick. They're in the wrong position. They've got double heads. They've got all kinds of weird things that can happen to them. 
Um, I guess my favorite word for an HCM heart is they're a little wonky, but they work okay most of the time, but not perfectly. So it's pretty amazing that they work as well as they do with so many minor abnormalities to the anatomy. But when you go to a center of excellence, they're thinking, are the papillary muscles driving something here? And when you're in a traditional cardiology office, I don't know that they get the appreciation that they need to get because they are a big driver of potential symptoms. Um, additionally, what you're saying about a patient who reports chest pain and they go, well, you must have some coronary artery disease. And I think if you went in and you looked at everybody over the age of 45, 50 in America, you're going to find some plaque in those, you know, arteries in the heart. And that might make people think, well, that must be the cause of your chest pain. And I too have seen many people been told, oh, well, you just have, you know, a little coronary artery disease and you need a stent and that's why you had chest pain and it doesn't resolve. And then you're committed to a device, you know, these implantable devices, stents for the rest of your life. And they're not doing anything to really help you feel better. So I would say if somebody needed to have multiple stents, but they're still not feeling better, that they probably want to check out with another cardiologist to see if they're really getting to the root cause of that chest pain. So while we're talking about chest pain and HCM and centers, can you explain some of the other causes of chest pain? Like where else would it come from if not from the coronaries? Well, it can happen because you have a significant obstruction to the blood flow and, and the pressure gradient goes up and, and uh, there's, there's still a, there's a decreased ability to supply the heart with enough oxygen because of the obstruction. So, you know, you just, it's, that's a, that's a, that's a big problem. And as a matter of fact, going back to stents for a second, I have seen patients who have had their, their management of hopum delayed, that is having a myectomy because they had a, a stent put in before they saw us. And after you put that stent in, you, you can't, you, 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 you have them on a type of blood thinner that you can't stop. Um, and you, cause the stent could clog up in the short term, why you, uh, if you stop it to go into surgery. So that's why I always tell patients, we got to make sure that what's all going on here before we, you know, if somebody tells you you need a stent, you better, you better look a little deeper to see what's going on. And that's, 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 that, I, that's delayed people. I've said it can delay surgery for six months. So additionally, so chest pain can come from obstruction. What about microvascular disease? Well, I, I, I don't know how important microvascular disease is when many of these, mo most patients with hokum, not all, but most patients with hokum have huge arteries and they're, they're you know, they, it's not as much of a problem as we see in, in other types of patients. It can happen, but it's not, it's not that. Can you explain to people what microvascular disease is? It means that the arteries are small and, you know, you you can get little plaques that you can't really ordinarily see. They're, 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 you know, you, they're so small that, you know, when you do that angiogram, you can't really see it. And so, you know, but, uh, but again, that tends not to be as much of a problem in a patient who has uh, thick walls and then the, the arteries tend to get bigger because of that, but it can happen, but it's not not usually as big of a, of a deal. There's a, about a 20% incidence of 
coronary artery disease in people who have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So about 80% do not have it. And it's the, the common path is not to have coronary disease. That's right. That's right. That's but right. some people but are just going to have but both. The pain, but the pain can sound look just, just like what you have with somebody with bad coronary artery disease. And, you know, and that's, that's why you've got to be careful and you, you know, you've got to rule everything out. And so the once other- the diagnosis of HCM has been made, the assessment of root cause of symptoms is best handled by a center of excellence. And the, the other big deal that we have to worry about is, is, uh, is aortic stenosis. Because if you get aortic, let's suppose you, somebody find, thinks you have aortic stenosis and they wanna, they wanna put in a new valve with a catheter, that can be a problem because you remove that valve in the cath lab and all of a sudden the, the heart tends to collapse when you take that valve out and put a new one in because the, the, the obstruction at the valvular level is gone and all of a sudden you get bad SAM that you didn't recognize. And that's when you might have to do an emergency alcohol septal ablation. We've had a few cases like that. And so again, if you think there's valvular heart disease, valvular aortic valve disease, you've got to look and, and look at that aortic valve and make sure that there's not a potential for obstruction if you were to take that valve out. So that's, that's a really important deal. I mean, there's no, I mean, we, we've, you know, you know, and you gotta be really suspicious about that. And, and sometimes, sometimes what you, if, if the patient is in such a situation where you think they wouldn't tolerate surgery for hokum or the aortic stenosis, and you wanna do a septomyectomy and replace the valve with a catheter, maybe what you're going to need to do first is to do the alcohol ablation so you don't get the obstruction in the heart and then replace the valve after the, that, that alcohol ablation. So you've got to really be aware. So knowing that there's not just an answer, but there's a right answer for somebody with HCM, if you have an, a known diagnosis of HCM, I don't think they would do TAVR typically in somebody with HCM. I know they've been done because they didn't realize it was that's, HCM. That, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Not, not recognizing it. Then and you, you've disease gotta, recognition is everything. That's right. And that's why you got to have people that are experienced in dealing with it. Absolutely. So we are, we will be taking questions in a few moments. So I'm going to pivot for the, for the final, oops, we do have some questions here. So sorry. Uh, can you talk about chest pain and non-obstructed HCM? What are the best, what are the tests to determine the cause of the symptoms of non-obstructed HCM? Um, so somebody who has, you know, non-obstructed HCM and they're getting chest pain, they're getting, they're asymptomatic. What's the root cause of their chest pain? Well, you want to look and see if they have, again, first start with a stress test and see if you can induce obstruction. You also want to see if, uh, if, if they drop their blood pressure, you know, it may be because of the obstruction or it may be because they do have underlying coronary artery disease. And if you start seeing a, a bit of, so you get a drop in blood pressure, you want to see if there's obstruction. And you also want to see, you know, uh, what, 
what their response to the stress is, you know, and if they're, you know, if you start seeing a drop in blood pressure and there's no obstruction, well, then you, you need to look at those coronary arteries with a cath, directly with a cath. I mean, I've also seen non-obstructors who, uh, who have dropped their blood pressure with stress and they didn't have, uh, they, they had such bad hokum that they would drop their blood pressure. And uh, that's, that's, a, that's a sign of a very sick heart. And you've, you've got to really look those people over. Uh, I had a patient like that about 10 years ago who uh, we put her on the treadmill and uh, she dropped her blood pressure 40 points and uh, no obstruction. And I was really worried about it. She had a really thick heart. There was no obstruction. And something said to me, you know, I'm worried about this drop in blood pressure. And about two weeks later, I get a call from the mom from an ambulance because we had, we decided when we saw that drop in blood pressure, we decided the patient ought to have an ICD. And the reason the call was from the ambulance was the girl was in school, she was doing something, had a cardiac arrest and the defibrillator went off and saved her life. And the mm -hmm. interesting thing is within the last, less than last, less than a year now, she's had just had a heart transplant. That was 10 years ago. And she, the heart was, you know, badly diseased and she went on for a time, but then it was clear that she had to have a heart transplant. So we saved her life 10 years back. We put that defibrillator in, she survived for a while and then we ended up with a heart transplant. So you gotta look for those sorts of things. So <clears throat> if a traditional community-based cardiologist and these are, this is data that I have from the American College of Cardiology, sees on average 2,000 patients a year. And of that, one in 250-ish will have HCM. So we're talking about 10 patients in an average practice. Well, that person is managing those 10 cases. So I think it's almost impossible to say, okay, Harry, think of only 10 patients. If you had 10 random patients walking in, what is the likelihood that any two of them would be the same? Not, not great. And you could have some obstructed, some non-obstructed, some with latent obstruction, some with end-stage disease, some with AFib, some who are at high risk of sudden death. You've got so many different opportunities but you're only seeing 10 a year. You're not going to see every piece of it. You're not going to know to look. Nope. And that's why nope. my experience in Center of Excellence Care, I swear, saved my life. Having people who knew and understood the disease as part of my care team got me safely to transplant. Only 5% of us go to transplant. It's not the common pathway. But you can get there safely and you have a destination if you have somebody who understands the disease completely. For those who need myectomy and then management, for those who are non-obstructed and need management, there's so many different opportunities for good care. So um, I just encourage you so much to use them, use a center if we have one. And I know it's a little frustrating to some of you when we're talking about how great care can be at a center and it's not exactly convenient for you to travel to one. We are working very hard here at the HCMA to build more programs, 
but they have to be quality programs. It's not just because a doctor says, hey, I want to see more HCM. They have to go through a very lengthy process and there's education involved and there's follow-up and there's site visits and there's interviews and there's evaluation. There's a lot of steps to becoming a center of excellence. They're not all equal. Some of them have lower volume than others. Some of them are early in their experience and some of them are very well developed, but they're critically important and we are trying to get more. If we can't get the care to your region, we are working on, um, I'm going to put a pitch in here. We are working on a fund that we have called the Lori Fund. Lori was my sister and it will provide micro grants for travel to HCM Center of Excellence Care, at least for an evaluation um, or maybe for your surgery. Or if you're at a center that does not have a transplant program, the micro grant would be available to be evaluated for transplant as well in, a far, in another center. Um, we are raising money for this program right now. And as soon as we hit um, some threshold numbers where we can actually start giving out the grants, first you gotta raise the money, then you can give the money away. So my birthday's in two weeks and I am doing a Facebook fundraiser for my birthday. And in that fundraiser, a portion of those funds collected will go to the Lori Fund. We are having a fundraiser in October here in New Jersey. All the proceeds from, well, not all of them, because we have to pay for overhead and stuff like that, but the, the majority of the funds collected in that fundraiser will go directly to the Lori Fund as well. So we will have these funds available. We will open up a grant process probably in the fourth quarter where patients can apply to get funding uh, for Airplane tickets, train tickets, gas money, food on the road, a hotel room for the night. That's but what we're going to be able to cover. Now that we've got this problem with COVID, that becomes even more important mm -hmm. because the airlines are doing a bad job of getting people where they need to go. And the last place you want to get stuck is in an airport where people are not wearing their masks. And that's where disease is passing. And, you know, and you also need to know what kind of shape the patient is in before they travel. Absolutely. Is it safer to take that? Is it, you got to worry about taking that chance of getting on an airplane that may not take you and may delay you somewhere if you're somewhat unstable versus having somebody drive you or having an ambulance take you because it depends on the stability of the patient. This is something that we haven't really had to worry as much about in the past, although I'd occasionally have some patients where we'd have to transfer them with an air ambulance. But you you need to know all these things because the last place you want to get stuck so is traveling to a, a center of excellence and get and getting stuck. This this is something we hadn't really ever had to think that much about. So we have a couple of comments, questions, and then we're going to talk about vacationing and travel. We just talked a little bit about travel there. Um, in general, are non-obstructed patients more likely to progress into heart failure? Hmm. Um, it was just, it depends. It, it, that's a hard thing to it's a say. It's a tough question. It's a good a question, question, Ann. It's a good question, but it's, it's a tough it, one to answer. Uh, you know, you've got to watch those patients carefully. And some of them, yeah, they can progress, but not everybody does. And some of the non-obstructors really aren't in that bad a shape but it requires close follow-up <laughs> so that you know it's so, it, that's a that's a that's a you know a, 
you know, we've given a class to some physicians and that's one of the things we've talked about. And it's not, you know, it's a matter of looking at the patient. It's not. So, Anne, I don't know what this means on your, your message, but it says anniversary follower. You have a little tag on that. So happy anniversary on following the HCMA. I guess. I've never seen that show up on somebody before. Um, Helene had a myectomy in November of 2020, but she still feels very poorly. So what should somebody post myectomy do if they're not feeling well? Um, you got to look at the patient very carefully and first start with an echo and see what, what, whether the myectomy was adequate. That's the most important thing to see. If it wasn't, then you may be stuck having a second myectomy. So you want to look for residual gradient and you right. want to look at diastolic function, right? Right, right. Is the heart but, contracting but I, and relaxing well? But, but, but usually the problem is that they haven't gotten the obstruction taken care of. That's the, usually the biggest problem. So we know that low volume myectomy centers don't tend to take enough or they don't do a, a, a deep enough or wide enough myectomy. Right. However, even in the best surgeon's hands, and I've seen this a few more times over the years, and I finally think I understand what's happening here. And I could be wrong on this one. This is at least a hypothesis moment. But once you've changed the internal uh, geometry of the heart, and there was an obstruction in area one. So now the heart is no longer impeded there. The heart doesn't beat up and down. It twists like a towel, like you're wringing out a towel. And maybe because now the geometry of the internal ventricle has changed, right. those contact points and those obstruction points may have altered slightly. This probably is like two to 3% of the myectomy population. It's very rare, but I have seen it a couple of times. Well, well, and it has to do a lot with the mitral valve and the papillary muscles. Yeah, it's that, and, that full interplay. Right. So, right. Um, Helene, I would suggest that you um, get back to a center, get some new imaging done, get to the root of where your symptoms are. And if we can be of assistance, do call the office and we'll see what we can do to help you out. Um, Gary, um, no, it doesn't work that way. Are all Hokum patients with sigmoid profiles considered high risk? No, yeah. no, that what that those tend to be are uh, the older age group patients with a sigmoid septum, but um, you know, I that they're not necessarily at higher risk, but you got to be aware of what you're dealing with, and and uh, you know, and depends on again what you start with, what you got, what you're going to end up with, and you have to you know look at this. That's why they have to be looked at very carefully. And, and also in the operating room, you know, we carefully look at the patient and make sure that obstruction, if make sure that there still isn't residual obstruction. It's very important that those patients be looked at for that also, you know, where they, we might stimulate them with a drug called isoproterenol to see if we can induce obstruction and make sure that we've taken care of everything that we needed to take care of. Fantastic. Okay, so let's pivot for a moment. We kind of started talking about this. Um, and when we have a topic of the month and I have multiple people talk about it, I, I think it's great because we get different perspectives on the same topic. So traveling with HCM over the summer, um, I typically am thinking of normal times <laughs> and non-COVID times. However, um, we're in COVID times and we're traveling. 
So I know there is no longer a federal mandate to travel in, a, in public transportation with masks. I personally think that's short-sighted and we're seeing explosions again in COVID. Yes, we have people who are vaccinated, doubled and boosted. So the impact of the disease is less. I had COVID in May. It was not fun. Um, and thank God I was protected as much as I could be. But um, I actually didn't get it in travel. I got it at a local mall trying to do a social event. <sighs> Live and learn because masks came off for a little bit and there was a variant going around at that point and boom, we got hit. And now we have other peaks. So wearing masks in public, number one, in crowded stores, probably still a really good idea, people. Um, on planes, trains, Ubers, definitely a good idea, people. Wear your masks. I know it's not comfortable, but I was traveling with a mask way before the pandemic. I went coast to coast multiple times. It does not impede your ability to breathe. It, it maybe caused a little bit of redness around my nose for a couple of days, but that's that was the, the consequence of not breathing in that recycled air that has other people's whatever in it. So we want you to do the masks and the hand sanitizers and the, the wipes and wipe down your seat and do all of those smart things. I've been doing something for years, the, the airflow above you on an airplane. I take a, an alcohol wipe and I wipe the actual nozzle so that the air coming down out of there might just be a little bit cleaner. Um, these are some of the tips that I've picked up as a transplant patient. So I encourage you all to use all of those protections. Um, Harry, what else do you think people need to well, know COVID-wise traveling? There's a website from the CDC, cdc.gov. And it tells you by county what the incidence of the disease is. It comes out Thursday night at eight o'clock every week. And uh, like last night, it came out and the numbers are not looking good in lots of places. California, for instance, is almost all red. Florida is all red. New York, which had been very bad, is now looking almost all green. And, you know, Massachusetts had gone up and Vermont and all that, you know, and now they have, it's sort of passed there. So one of the things I think I would think about is where do you think you're gonna go and see what the incidents might be there to try, not that that's gonna absolutely prevent you from getting sick, but you would rather not go into a place that is graded severe when you could find another place that might be safer. And I, I, that website is, it, I check it every, I check it every Thursday night. And uh, what I saw in Ohio did not make me happy last night. Mm. And, and if you look at your, there's something wrong with your state though, in New Jersey. <laughs> New Jersey it, gets funny when you say that, but yeah. It's gotten very red again. It, oh. it, and I don't know what it is about that, but it's, it's maybe, I don't know what the, what the reason is. But, um, you know, I think that I think areas that have big airports yeah. and lots of people that work in the airports and it's coming in from wherever. And then those people right. are going out to the community. So right. we're getting we have a lot of people from a lot of places coming through New Jersey as well. Yeah. Well, that's just, maybe that's why Illinois is so red. Whereas mm -hmm. right now, um, Michigan believe it or not, had been really in some trouble. It too is not looking bad now. 
So you just that that that's something to think about is where you you know and and you want to know also about where you're going. You want to know about the restaurants that you're going. Can you have a restaurant that you can eat outside, or do they have takeout service where you don't have to sit in a place where there's because when you eat, you got to take the mask off. And so if you would be better to take the food out and to wherever you're staying in a hotel or something like that, that that might be safer. So these so are make, make wise accommodations safe. to your travel right. and be COVID sensitive because you don't want COVID on top of HCM if you can otherwise avoid it. And if you can drive a car, you're probably safer than getting on an airplane now, you know, mm -hmm. uh, because of that problem where they didn't think it was important to wear a mask all of a sudden you know and we've got to start hoping that politicians will stop making medical decisions because that's so we have a question regarding covid um we've already had covid and came through it okay mild symptoms should you assume that you'll be fine if you get it again or is that naive that's naive we don't know what the next strains are going to be but the strains will continue to evolve. And, you know, first, we didn't have any treatment. So we have treatments now. So that's a little bit better. But what you're seeing is this, it was harder to contract up front. And this virus is a smart little virus. It's making itself easier to attach to you. So it might have meant milder symptoms for this more transient uh, variant. But we don't know if these variants will get stronger or they will just kind of peter out and fade away and come back in cycles like the flu. So we don't know yet. And I think it's it's naive to think, you know, I had it in May. I was not happy for 10 days. It was not good, but I was not in a hospital. Um, I don't want to try again. Thank you. <laughs> um, but I think there's, I know people who've had it three and four times now. And each one was a little bit different. Some were better, some were worse. But you got to be careful out there, people. You got to be careful. So let's pivot to HCM-related vacation things to think about. And I always start with hydration, hydration, hydration. Mm -hmm. um, you're outdoors. It's hot. You're getting dehydrated. Not great for HCM. Uh, you're at an amusement park, you're eating salty, fatty foods, and you're drinking and you're dehydrated. Is this a good thing for somebody with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? No, you need to have, drink electrolyte fluids. Just fluids that contain a little bit of a little bit of sodium, you know. Usually they're what, what we so say. Gatorade, propel. Gatorade. Yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff is 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 important. And uh, you don't, you know, now, now, particularly these past few weeks where it's been so hot, mm -hmm. you've got to really be careful because that people, <laughs> you get dehydrated with this disease, you're in big trouble and you've got to. So really, why are they in big trouble if they're dehydrated? Because the mechanism? What, the mechanism is that the cavity of the heart shrinks. If you have a tendency for provocable obstruction, you can develop it with the dehydration, and you've got to, you know, you've got to really be careful about that. And you've got to, you know, the hydration is so important. It is just, and, and and at the same time, this even people who don't have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy can get pretty sick if they really get dehydrated. 
you know, when it suddenly goes to 100 degrees out there or more, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's a big problem. And okay. uh, so we want to make sure they stay hydrated. We want to make sure that they don't overdo it. I'm a vacation overdoer. If I'm on vacation, I want to get every minute out of the day and I want to do a lot of stuff. Um, and when I had HCM, if I did the amusement part thing, I got a, a scooter so I could do the scooter thing. So I wasn't exerting as much energy so I could get more energy out of, you know, do more things in the day. You have to limit your energy. You have to know what you're capable of doing. Um, and that's knowing where your limits are and not being afraid to tell the family, okay, you guys go do that. I'm going to sit by the pool today and relax. You've got to balance. If you've got kids with HCM vacation, they want to just go do, 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 do. You want to make sure that you're scheduling some downtime. You want to not be running all the time because they're going to get exhausted. They're going to get dehydrated. They're going to not eat well, not rest well. So remember, vacation is supposed to be restful. Somehow in our lives, we kind of turn to the Disney station is the way I look at it. And we have to go someplace big and do big things. We should relax, people. Beaches, rivers, lakes. Go sit and look at water. Relax. We're running all year long. Our brains are constantly engaged. Put down the computer. Put down the phone. Relax. Best thing you can do for yourself. Okay. You know, I always, I've I kind of jokingly told people some of the safest places to go, maybe like Alaska, where in the, it's not real hot in the summer. Not. No. And you just, rather than going down to Southern Florida or someplace like that, where. Oh, no, you go to, you see, you go to Florida in the winter and then you go to Alaska in the summer. This is right, the way right. you keep yourselves at, at normal speed. So if you're traveling, remember, keep your medications with you on the plane or in the train and make sure that you know where they are at all times. Um, I did get a question the other day about a family who they have multiple family members with HCM and nobody has ICDs, but they have an AED in the house. Yes, you can take your AED with you on vacation. Um, that's fine. Uh, you're probably not going to need it, but if it makes you feel more confident and comfortable with where you're going, then certainly bring your AED with you or a call to see if the hotel has an AED on site and what their policies are related to AED placement. Um, and maybe you want to choose your hotel um, based on whether or not they have such accommodations. And uh, I think that's a wise idea. HCMA, uh, when we were holding our in-person meetings, we would only have meetings at hotels that had AEDs on site. Um, since then, New Jersey passed a law and there's AEDs in every hotel now. So we're pretty safe coming to Jersey, but most people don't want to come to New Jersey on vacation. I don't know why. We have a great boardwalk. We have a fantastic uh, uh, mountain region with beautiful lakes, rivers. Come to Jersey. We're fun. Um, <laughs> Oh, I'm giving my Jersey pitch. I'm a Jersey girl. What can I say? Um, so what else do people need to know about vacation? I think that's pretty that's, much it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I mean, not, I'll tell you, not, not, not <laughs> right now, Florida is not a good place to go. It's extremely hot. It is uh, very high in COVID. And you, you know, I wouldn't recommend, I don't think I would recommend going to Disney at this time. I mean, if you're talking about, you gotta, you know, and sometimes 
going out to places in the countryside where there aren't as many people. The temperature's a little cooler. You just, you know, but, but uh, that, 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 that's really important. I mean, I, I can't stress that enough. You know, you wanna be where there aren't as many people and it's not real hot and you can, but you also wanna be sure that there is some medical facilities around so that, you know, if you ran into trouble, you'd, you'd have somebody that, you, you know, and it might be worthwhile looking around just to see, you know, is there a hospital? Because, you know, they've been talking about Georgia where the medical facilities aren't very good, it seems. So, really? Yeah. So rural areas have small hospitals so, if they have any at all anymore. Right, a lot right. of them have closed. Right. So you want to make sure you know where a hospital is. Even exactly. if it's not a great hospital, they can transport you. They have the systems in place. Right. They can transport you elsewhere. Right. right. Um, and I would also make sure that you have a copy of your recent EKG with you. That's right. Because we have a, a propensity to freak people out in emergency rooms. Right. <laughs> when they see our EKG, they're like, oh, it looks like you're having a heart attack. Can you right. tell people why that is, Harry? Why do HCM people look like they're having a heart attack? Because the EKGs uh, look, they look like, you know, they have increased voltage. We tell, or we, they have the deep T wave inversion is what we can see with coronary artery disease. So that's why, you know, you want to say, yeah, when you, when they show up in the emergency room uh, with a physician who doesn't have a lot of experience in that disease, it's helpful to be able to say to them, I've had this EKG before and it's not, you know, it's, you know, like, like for instance, if you needed some sort of emergency gastric surgery, something, you know, that's unrelated, unrelated, or you hurt yourself and you had needed, you needed uh, orthopedic surgery or something like that. You don't want that anesthesiologist to worry that maybe we shouldn't put you under anesthesia because the EKG is so markedly abnormal. And if you can say, oh, I've had this before, that, that, that's, that's a big savings. So many years ago, I was in a very minor car accident. Um, it was leap year day. And it was a snowstorm in Jersey. And somebody crossed a double yellow line, bought me into a corner. And, and when I hit, you know, when the ambulance came, they said, are you okay? And my heart was racing because I'd just been in a little car accident. I'm like, I have a heart condition. Da, 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 da. And immediately I was off to the hospital. I'm like, I'm fine. This It's not related to my heart, but they took me because I was in an accident. Right. When I got to the emergency room, they came in with EKG leads. I said, we're not doing that. And they're like, it doesn't hurt. I'm like, I'm well aware, but I'm not doing that because here's what's going to happen. You're going to see a right bundle branch block. You're going to freak out. You're going to see high voltage. You're going to see T-wave abnormalities. You're going to think I'm having a heart attack. You're going to want to take me to the cath lab. I'm not going to the cath lab. And we're going to start this whole cascade of drama. And I'm not playing. And the nurse just looked at me like, okay, the doctor is going to come in and talk to you. So the doctor walked in and he's like, why won't you have an EKG? I said, because I have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and you're going to freak out. You're going to think I'm having an MI. You're going to want to bring me to the cath lab and I'm not going. I just got in a little car accident. Just make sure my neck's okay. And he looked at me and he said, you're right. It will cause drama. We won't do the EKG. And the nurse was stunned um, because I wasn't there for that. And there was not going to be surgery and there was nothing else. That would just make sure my neck's okay. And we moved on from there. So 
you sometimes have to advocate for yourself in weird places. So I do encourage you bringing an EKG. We do have two questions that are not related to the topic, but we have two or three more minutes. So I will address them together for Gary. Um, Gary wants to know two things. What does it mean to have complete left ventricular cavity obliteration? And why is alcohol bad for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy? Well, first, the second one first, alcohol uh, can induce atrial fibrillation. And um, it, it, the thicker the heart, the less alcohol you need to go into atrial fib. And I, I've for years told my patients to really stay away from alcohol. You don't want to take that chance. People who don't have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, if they drink too much, can get atrial fibrillation just from the, the, the alcohol itself. It can act as almost like a poison in the heart. So certainly if you have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, you want to stay away from alcohol. And uh, what was the second question was? What is cavity obliteration? Cavity obliteration, just that. It means that the cavity can get very small where there's almost no cavity at all. And that happens with thick hearts. That happens also with thick hearts that the patient is dehydrated. So we want to keep it high. We want to keep the patient well hydrated. That's why you don't want to get dehydrated on a hot day. Fantastic. Gary, I encourage you to join our new, newly diagnosed um, discussion group. We hold it once a month. Um, that might help answer some other questions about the anatomic presentations of HCM. Um, you can get those um, discussion group listings on our, on our website, and we hope you all join them. So yeah, Connie was, carries a copy of her EKG and that's great. All right. Well, we're down to another episode of Tales from the Heart in, in the uh, vault. And I hope you've all enjoyed this conversation. And Gary and I have a call scheduled on Monday. The, oh, yes. Okay. Yes. You're my only call on Monday because that's our last day in the office. Tuesday, we pack up and we move to 66 Ford Road, Suite 213B, where we will have a lovely office and an elevator, which I'm really excited about because we're a little nonprofit and we've never had a suite with an office with an elevator before. We've traditionally been a walk up. So it's nice that we have uh, a new facility that we're moving to and some room to grow. And I am hoping to make a couple other announcements in the middle of or beginning of August with some um, new uh, programs and some new stuff happening. So stay tuned. There's always something percolating here at the HCMA. And a reminder to those who joined late, if you are taking CAMS IOS and you've scheduled prescription, like not a trial, but you actually have a prescription and you are in the REMS program. The FDA and uh, HCMA are interested in hearing your experience with the REMS program. This isn't really about CAMS IOS and its utility. It's more about the systems in place and how you have interacted with them. Please email julie at 4hcm.org, J-U-L-I-E at the number 4hcm.org by Tuesday because it's going to move very quickly. We're going to need to get this information over to our partners at the FDA and they will, they want to hear your experience. So I'm looking for five people. Uh, so here's your opportunity to change processes and explain what your experience was and maybe give some constructive criticism so that we can make better systems in the future. Um, these opportunities do not happen often, people, so please take advantage of the opportunity to have your voice heard and make changes that might help other people. This is not just about HCM. It's about all REMS programs. 
So they're looking at MS drugs, oncology drugs, uh, a couple of other classes. And I would love to have some representatives of the HCM community participating in this. So please email us. Oh, and Julie just popped in with her email. So Harry, thank you so much for your time today. As always, delightful to speak with you. And I'm going to sign off of Facebook now. Have you enjoyed this episode of Tales from the Heart? We hope so. Please visit us at 4hcm.org. Become a member, become a donor, become a volunteer. Great news, everybody. HCM Academy is now available online. What is it? It includes online sessions, learning about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, patient stories about HCM and their management, and an opportunity to join online live with an HCM specialist to go over the slides, ask questions, and dig deeper into your understanding and knowledge of HCM. All CME courses are free, and you can find them at 4hcm.org or at the HCM Academy. The Big Hearted Warrior Tour continues. For the latest dates, please check 4hcm.org. And thanks to our sponsors, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Cytokinetics, Invitae, and Boston Scientific. Did you know discussion groups are available at 4hcm.org? Monday through Friday, almost every day you can find a discussion group. Whether you're interested in learning more about ICDs, premyectomy, screening your family, there's a discussion group for you. Even if you just want to learn how to balance your mental health, we have that too. So please join us for one of our live discussion groups moderated by a peer volunteer and you can sign up in advance at 4hcm.org. Just check the calendar for events. Please contact the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association at 4hcm.org or by calling our office at 973-983-7429. You can contact the HCMA by email at support at 4hcm.org. Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the HCMA, is made possible through sponsorship from Boston Scientific, Cytokinetics, Tanaya, Invitae, and Boston Scientific.